Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1376, air date December 14th, 2023. Guys, TV here on Brighton.com, free speech platform. I'm Mike Adams, the founder of Brighton. And of course, I'm joined today by my co-host, Todd Pittner. Welcome, Todd. Great to have you join me Hola. today. Very, very good to be here. This is going to be exciting. I've never interviewed a presidential candidate before. I know you have, but I haven't. I'm excited. Well, if you're going to interview any presidential candidate, this is the guy to interview. We have Dr. <laughs> yeah. Shiva joining us today. His website is shivaforpresident.com, and that's the numeral for shivaforpresident.com. Welcome, Dr. Shiva. Great to have you on the show today. Welcome, Mike. Great to be here. I'm sorry I'm not dressed in a suit and jacket. You know, we were literally out in the cold at about 20 degrees uh, this morning. Uh, collecting signatures, but I'm really, really looking forward to talking about artificial intelligence, um, you know, the trajectory that it's going on and what must be done if we're really going to put it in the right trajectory where it serves working people in the broad mass of humanity versus a finite set of people. So great, Mike. Thanks to both of you for having me here today. Well, we're honored to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to join us. And I, what I love about interviewing you, Dr. Shiva, it's so refreshing to hear just sort of the the raw truth about what's going on and you know you're not afraid to tell it like it is you're, you're not out calculating uh who who is going to be offended by this statement or that statement or how many people do i win with saying this thing you're just out there analyzing the way you see it and sharing that with the world and, and you're also obviously very high iq you've done a tremendous number of things in your life that demonstrate that and so with that said let's jump into the topic today uh ai and control of technology so ChatGPT and uh, OpenAI, the corporation, plus many other companies, Microsoft, Google, uh, IBM with Watson X and so on, uh, Facebook, Meta, they're all rolling out AI systems. All of these AI systems are centrally controlled by corporations. Most of them are closed systems. There's an open source community separate from that, which we'll talk about, but these corporations are running closed systems. And Dr. Shiva, all of these AI systems are woke. They all think that men can have babies, they all think that climate change is going to kill humanity, and they all think that we should defer to government authority and not do things ourselves or think for ourselves. What's your overall response to that, what I just described, that that exists now? So, Mike, let me just give a couple of prefatory remarks to, on how we want to discuss this. So I think, first of all, I think it's important that people understand what is artificial intelligence, right? Um, I want to discuss the three main components of it because my intention here is to really educate people. I've been doing AI research um, in a very deep way since I was 14 years old, what you today call machine learning, and then my work at MIT, and then ongoing after that. So um, what I share with you comes from not only theory, but actual practice. And then um, in a profound way, having deployed some of the earliest AI systems, particularly for some of the largest Fortune 1000 companies between uh, 1993, to 2000 and you know to the 2003 and currently um mike just on the presidential side i just want to let people know i'm in a little room here because we were out this morning at 7 a.m we flew into utah uh, we have about a couple of weeks to collect signatures to get on the ballot and it's very important to understand um we talk about decentralization even in the simple ballot collection process what's supposed to happen in the true democratic fashion you're supposed to have volunteers in every state you're supposed to really um, support your volunteers to go to every state, meet the state requirements to collect signatures. Even in this realm, Mike and um, Todd, what the elites do is they centralize it. So Kennedy in Utah, 
uh, whined that he couldn't get enough signatures in the short amount of time. It's only a thousand signatures. He went and did backroom deals with the Secretary of State so he could get an extension extended time. And then he goes online and begs people for money. This is a billion dollar trust fund guy. Give me one dollar. Give me five dollars. So he takes that money and then he gives it to consultants who charge 10 to 20 bucks to get signatures. Again, a centralized model. I was out on the ground um, with our volunteers and we were literally collecting signatures. So only a thousand signatures. In Florida, you gotta get about 130,000. I think in Texas, around 20,000. But the yeah, a thousand seems very done, small. <laughs> it's it's very, very small, Mike, but the reason this was done to really support the democratic process, you really had to have ground support bottoms up. And think about this, what they do. They even cheat on something like this. They beg for money, take that money from poor working people, and then they give it to their friends for these large signature collection companies. Uh -huh. So it's really disgraceful that everything that they do, Mike, to your earlier point, is top-down, top-down centralization. So now when we talk about AI, the swarm, as I like to call it, they are always looking at the trajectory of taking any technology, whatever, however good it is. You know, when the web came, it was supposed to be, we were all supposed to build individual websites, build our own following. And then what did they do with that? They centralized it with four major social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and you know, Google, right? My, MySpace. Uh, MySpace. Yeah. Yeah. MySpace was the first one, right? So the goal is to brainwash people not to build their own individual homesteads, but to go lazy and outsource it to these, um, you know, large conglomerates. And this continually keeps happening whenever technology comes. When the Gutenberg press came, we were all excited. Wow, we were all going to be able to be our own publishers. But as technology went in the hands of the elites, you have four or five major publishing companies. So we need to recognize that the technology is not going to make the world we want. It is who controls that technology and do policymakers understand these technologies? Most of them do not understand it. And by the time the elites deploy a technology, the policymakers, because of their stupidity and ignorance, because their lack of understanding of the technology, 20 years later, they try to implement legislation. It's too little, too late. So this is one of my huge concerns is that our legislators have they're illiterate about this tech. I mean, completely. Illiterate. I mean, let's be honest, many, many, especially GOP senators don't know how to use email, which I mean, you are the first guy to I think didn't you actually create the first email system in the world? I created the first email system and we have to be very clear. There's no controversy on this. Uh, the exchange of text messages between computers and electronic devices is not email. That would make Samuel Morris the creator of email. Email is what I created as a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, before I came to MIT in a small medical college solving a civilian problem, helping secretaries who had this very complex system. They were the managers of it in most organizations, women who had a typewriter on their desktop, was physically a desktop, an inbox, an outbox. They had physical file folders. They had trash cans. They had the little... Uh, paper clips. They had whiteout to, you know, change things. They had paper to create um, carbon copies, right? And this was a very complex system called the inner office mail system. System's a key. About a hundred different complex parts. And I converted that to the electronic version in 50,000 lines of code. Didn't let, write 15 minutes of code to simply add text to the bottom of the file, which is what Raytheon and the defense companies did, which they conflated 
to be quote unquote email after I was the one who called it email and discovered it and invented it in 1978 as a 14 year old boy before I came to MIT, before the military industrial complex. And that system I named email, got the first United States copyright, recognizing me as the official inventor of email before the Supreme Court started recognizing software patents. So wow. yes, Mike, so I've been involved two lives with email, Mike, that was the first life. And when it gets to AI, um, it's a good point to sort of start in 1993. Uh, many people over the age of 40 will know this, the first email systems, Mike, you'll remember were deployed in the intranet, in inter-office systems. You didn't That's need right. the internet, right? So people between 1978 to 1993, email was deployed where people connected machines and local area networks or wide area networks. We put email running on it. And it was an inner office application mimicking the inner office paper-based mail system. That's right. After, yeah, after 1993, when the World Wide Web came, WWW, which gave the front end to the internet, it, email becomes a consumer application. Hotmail, Yahoo, recreate what I had done in the framework of the web. And that's when email volume takes off, right? Because in 1993, I would do huge seminars on the internet's coming, hey, build your websites. People say, what are you talking about? And if you raised <laughs> in a room of about a thousand people, how many of you had an email address would be about two out of a thousand. I remember those days because I would tell people, what's your email address? And they would say, what's that? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and everyone listening needs to recognize that prior to 1993, email was not a consumer application. Nerds used it, you know, office workers used it, you know, if you worked in companies. But after 1993, the email becomes a consumer application. So if you take 1993 to 1997, something profoundly important takes place where AI becomes necessary. And where I get, again, involved in this, what happens is, is so 1993, people start using email, people start getting these free email accounts, if people remember Hotmail, Yahoo, mm -hmm. et cetera, AOL. But by 1997, the email usage had exceeded snail mail usage. And there's a wonderful graph people can look at in 1997. If you do the x-axis is years and the y-axis is volume, you'll see snail mail volume is coming down and email volume is going up. It's a very interesting cross point. That's 1997. And at that point, Mike, I, was, I had just started a company in 1994. And this is what happened. I was, I had done my, engineering work at MIT in electrical engineering, had come back to MIT to start my a master's work in uh, theoretical mechanics in a field called um, uh, wave propagation and was doing another master's over at the media lab in scientific visualization, very complex data. And then I started my PhD in 1993. And my PhD was called information cybernetics. It was really the AI before AI at that point. And what, we, what I was developing, Mike, was a broad platform to analyze any kind of pattern. So anyone who's heard the word AI for a second, replace it with the word pattern recognition. Uh -huh, pattern right. recognition is really the guts of artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Right? So um, in many, many different fields, people are developing these quote-unquote pattern recognition algorithms. In the field of cardiology, people are looking at different ultrasonic waves from the heart, trying to predict, oh, what kind of uh, heart disease does someone have? Um, in the air, in the field of ultrasonic 
uh, non-destructive evaluation. The military would send waves through aircraft wings and see the wave coming back and trying to predict, was there decay in the wings versus you know opening up a $100 million aircraft wing, right? Right. Um, in, in the field of face analysis, people are analyzing a face and wanted to predict what race they were, what their emotions would be. So you can apply pattern recognition to any field, handwriting recognition, voice analysis, et cetera. And what I had come to conclude in the middle of my PhD, Mike, was that all of these little fiefdoms of scientific research were doing their own little siloed version of three fundamental processes, which are the fundamental processes of artificial intelligence or what I call pattern recognition. So I want everyone to listen carefully. What is AI and what are those three processes? The first process is called feature extraction. The second process is called clustering. And the third process is called learning. Feature extraction, clustering, and learning. And this is really the foundation of, frankly, intelligence. Simple example, as human beings, if you believe we evolved, let's assume you believe that for a second, how did we evolve? Our evolution was fundamentally based on building this intelligent capability to recognize patterns and make very important decisions about those patterns. And then we learned from them. And this was the basis of human culture. Give you an example. Let's say all three of us were out in the woods and a snake is coming at you. You have to make a decision. Let's say I'm going to be sort of facetious here, whether you're going to pet the snake or whether you're going to run from it. <laughs> and you know, Todd, you uh, let's say someone else may see the snake and they decide to pet it and we're watching, they go, oh, he died. Well, we may realize, oh, that snake had a diamond head. Okay, avoid those. The next day we see a different kind of snake. Maybe it's a small snake with a brown coloring and someone pet it was fine. Maybe it's, you call it a gardener snake. And through this process over time, we start recognizing features. Features are key that it's called the art of AI or the art of pattern recognition. One feature may be the, the shape of the, the head of the snake. One is the speed at which it moves. One is the length of the snake. One may be spots. So now you have four features. And over time, people started creating categories of these features, right? And that you call clusters, clustering. Okay, if a feature was diamond shaped and this and this and this, poisonous, this friendly, okay? And the learning piece of it, the third part of it would be there would be events where something wouldn't fit those categories. Maybe there was a beautiful green snake that was actually under certain conditions poisonous. So over time, people went through this process. They had certain features, which they learned. They had clusters, groups, and then they had a learning model, right? So feature extraction, the clustering, and the learning were the foundations of pattern recognition or AI. Now, this has existed since 1960s and 1970s, um, Mike and Todd. And the way that this process would go is the feature extraction was something that was built over time. The clustering was categories that you built based on either business needs or decision-making needs. But the learning was very, very important. The learning fit two types of learning models. One was called supervised learning and the other was unsupervised. But let's start with supervised learning. Supervised learning is where you need enough data where you would start having an expert say, oh, this type of categories is poisonous. These types of categories is non-poisonous, right? So I'll give you an example. Michelle, who's um, my partner, Michelle, 
is this is does cytology cytology is a very interesting field people are looking through microscopes and there's only 6,000 cytologists left in the United States they look through a microscope and they see cells cyto means cell and they have to make a decision is that cell cancerous or not and so they're looking for all different kinds of features and they're categorizing in their mind what these features are and then once they categorize something it goes to a higher level person called a pathologist he's like their teacher or their trainer and he says no you got it right nope you got it wrong and through this process of cytologists in their training over many many years they learn what's now happening is ai systems are watching the cytologists and they're observing what they're doing this is called training data training data so Michelle, let's say, gets paid X per hour to analyze a slide, but she's not being paid for her brain to be downloaded and that training data to be owned by some large centralized company somewhere. And when that's done, that training data is no longer owned by her. It's owned by somebody else. And two things can happen. The cytologist can be exited out of the job or uh, and, and then that data gets instantiated into a new machine where you have a virtual cytologist, right? Yes. But the training data is important. Who owns the training data? Who is, are people being compensated for their training data? You could argue from a worker perspective, the cytologist should potentially receive a royalty on that training data. This is a policy question, right? Because well, it was but, their but, brain but, and their on, knowledge. Shiva, being, yeah. Um, let, me, let me interject here. Um, the training data on the linguistic patterns is being offered by everybody for free as you're well aware so when people post on x or when people post on facebook or even when they post a youtube video they are offering all of that training data for free under the terms of service that these corporations have and and in fact elon musk and he's scraping every post on twitter in order to build grok which is their new ai system the same thing's happening with meta and facebook and so on so i just i want you to respond to this that that people are unaware that they are training AI systems simply by interacting with large platforms and thereby they are ultimately replacing themselves for many job functions such as creative writing or behavioral functions or analyzing images like you were talking about with cytology. Is, isn't that exactly what's happening today? Yeah, and, and I think you nailed it, Mike. So this is again what happens when we have legislators in Congress, people who are put there by Silicon Valley. Um, and and we everyone should know that we have a woke versus anti-woke dialectic. Both wings of the establishment are working together. In fact, those of you who are Republicans, please understand, most of the Republicans get a lot of funding from Silicon Valley to not discuss this. Yes. This very educate people. Jim Jordan, right? All these guys. And we need to, Mike, if I can make an aside on this, on this very central point, that the Congress of the United States right now does not represent people at, at any fundamental level. And I wanna just make this point clear. When you look at the fact, what I discovered in 2020, that the government has created backdoor portals to every social media company, this will give you a very important point. And it's not the liberals, it's not, um, it's not uh, Biden who did this, it is both Republicans and Democrats. And why do I say that? On November 16, 2018, the Congress of the United States unanimously passed the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency Act, CISA, right. which they told the public was protecting our, our infrastructure from foreign actors. 
But what they actually did, Mike and Todd, was it created, SISA gave the right for Congress to create an infrastructure under SISA to surveil and censor US citizens. That infrastructure was allowed by Congress, which is a complete violation of the First Amendment. The First Amendment says Congress shall create no laws to bridge the First Amendment. That's what Congress did on November 16, 2018. And guess who signed it into law? Donald Trump. The Make America Great Donald Trump, the Lock Her Up Donald Trump, the mm -hmm. Drain the Swamp Donald Trump. So this is very important to understand that Hillary Clinton signed that law, there would have been a revolution in this country. But the Congress of the United States, who is, they're all Epstein, every single one of them, be it Israel, be it foreign actors out of the United Kingdom, the Atlantic Council, essentially implicitly or explicitly own most of these Congress people. And then secondarily, they were funded by Silicon Valley, the technology guys. So Congress did a trade. They said, okay, in order for me to support the foreign actors who want to surveil the US citizens, they allowed the backdoor portal into Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And to satisfy their funders in Silicon Valley, they gave Section 230 immunity. It's quite amazing. This is what happened. So the same Congress of the United States is today allowing these same social media companies, for that matter, every major corporation at the centralized level to collect our data, put into the fine print, right? So the average American is not aware that our brains are being sucked up as training data and then being memorialized and instantiated into these learning models. Most recently, Mike and Todd, if you, and I don't care much for Hollywood, but the Screen Actors Guild, did a massive sellout. They had a big union, 160,000 people. By the way, it's a bogus union because only 20,000 of them even participate. But over the last many years, Hollywood has, has now created such leverage on any actor. Now, most of the actors are want to be celebrities. There are real actors in Hollywood who really do it as a craft. And many of them have to compromise. So what's happened is in the new contract, quote unquote contract, the union contract, the contract says that if you are a Hollywood actor, you can give AI consent. So when you do a show, when you do a theater performance, they will take your scans and they can recreate you, Mike, overnight or Todd, overnight. Uh, uh, absolutely. Now, the, wait, wait, the Dr. average I'm... actor who is an up and coming actor, let's say he's really worked at his craft and there's a hundred others and he gets chosen for a part. He has no leverage. They're going to say, okay, you're going to sign the AI consent. The AI consent is they can create a digital replica of you and they get to reuse it in perpetuity. The big named actors, most of them who are the Hollywood A-list actors, or by the way, all Zionists, okay? And we can talk about that. That set of actors have big lawyers. They can lawyer up. So Tom Cruise can lawyer up to protect his AI digital replicas. In fact, he'll be able to do three or four movies and make more money. But the small up and coming actor, let's say a true craftsman, he's done with because he's scant because he won't have the leverage to to, you know, uh, fight. He won't he can't lawyer up. He doesn't have the money. Right. Right. So, so you, this is what's going on right now. So we're all on. Let's say we're on Twitter and Facebook. Mike, we've seen both of us getting massively shadow banned. What's going on right now is they're literally creating avatars of, of Mike Adams, an avatar of Dr. Shiva, an avatar of Todd. They are taking all of my tweets, they're taking all of my followers, and they know two things with predictive analytics and machine learning. And by the way, these algorithms are very simple. They've existed since 1960 and 70. 
And the algorithms can literally take every one of my followers, Mike, and I, I think we spoke about this before, and using what are called clustering algorithms, unsupervised clustering algorithms. They can say, oh, Dr. Shiva's followers have this pattern, this feature. They all like dogs, you know, they live uh, you know, in this kind of weather, what, whatever, they can create a feature, it's called a signal. With that signal, pattern signal, they can now sweep across all 8 billion people on the planet and they can say, oh, those are the people who are gonna love Dr. Shiva. They're the ones who are gonna wanna shatter the swarm. They're the ones who are gonna call out Kennedy and Trump and all these people. They're gonna educate people how the system is profoundly rigged in the, fa in the, in the, fa in the favor of the small. Those people then, Mike, they can not only make sure they never see me, shadow ban me, but they can send people the fake versions of me. Oh, would you like to follow right. Vivek the Snake? Would you like to follow Booby Kennedy? Would you like to follow Trump? So that's what's going on. It's the level of censorship is censorship 10.0. Wow. And they're Total using information AI. control. Um, let let me interrupt. No, yep. uh, I, I completely agree with what you just said. I want to bring in something that alludes to what you just mentioned. And then I want to give Todd a chance to respond here. But uh, if you can show my screen, I have the CISA Roadmap for Artificial Intelligence document for 2023-2024. This is at CISA.gov. And if you go in here, folks, look at line effort three. This is called Protect Critical Infrastructure from Malicious Use of AI. You know what that's all about? It is about censorship, what Dr. Shiva was just talking about. They say that if you question the establishment, then you are a malicious actor. And what CISA plans to do here is to use AI as a weapon system against free speech in America. And so this document is what, this confirms what Dr. Shiva was just talking about. Now, Todd, love to get your reaction so far uh, of everything that Dr. Shiva has relayed. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, Dr. Shiva, uh, I would like to make an embarrassing admission. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I had three things on my mind. Uh, first, would I make the varsity football team as a freshman? And second and third was Karen Holthouse or Corrine Peters? They were both really pretty. I mean, you, in, you, you invented email systems. You invented email. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So anyway, I have a little email envy, but uh, Dr. Shiva, you ran for Senate in Massachusetts in 2018, garnering 4% of the vote, and then ran again in 2020, losing to Kevin O'Connor. Um, you battled on the front lines. You're, you're battling now. You're running for president, for crying out loud. Uh, but you battled on the front lines with what I deem to be literally, I'm going there, demonic forces, uh, the elites as you have written, who, who think they know better. Dr. Shiva, I'd appreciate your candid answer to the following pointed question. <laughs> Are these really elections or simply kabuki theater selections, Dr. Shiva? Yeah, so, so um, Todd, look, I, as you said, I, since, uh, to give you my personal history, um, when I was four or five years old, I experienced a caste system in India and its brutality and very personally, um, in a very deeply emotional way. So that I got very, very, uh, moved to want to understand systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. So I studied everything I could, Todd, left wing, right wing, up, down, everything. So by the time I was 17, when I came to MIT, which I didn't even know about, by the way, I was also 
enjoyed sports. I was on a varsity soccer team, varsity baseball. Um, so I wasn't just a nerd. My dad always felt that you have to develop your mind and your body. Um, but when I, I didn't know about MIT until two weeks before I applied. And it's a long, interesting journey there. And when I came to MIT, I realized that we needed to build movements. So I organized a student newspaper on campus. We did all sorts of very good activism on campus, but I was always a believer in bottoms up decentralized movements. It was only in 2018 um, that I decided after I saw the disgraceful way that uh, people e even in the United States were being mistreated um, in lack of understanding of where, lack of uh, uh, support for the working people in this country, you know? Mm -hmm. that I decided to run against a woman called Elizabeth Warren. Here's a woman who's truly a racist. She used race to get everything she wanted. That is racism, exploitation of race. Uh, if someone calls me the N-word or something like that, I just consider that ignorance. You know, I grew up in Jersey. You know, I first came to the United States. People call me all sorts of names, you know, and then we became friends, right? But that is not racism. To me, racism is exploiting race for financial or other advancement. And that is what Elizabeth Warren did. So when we, when we ran, in 2017 and 18, uh, we did a great campaign. Only the real Indian could defeat the fake Indian. We're the ones who forced her to take the DNA test. And the elites didn't know what to do with us because they couldn't. I mean, they would call me a racist and a white supremacist. But it was it was a very interesting contradiction. Now, in 2020, when we ran against a guy, uh, in fact, we ran, we had 3,000 volunteers on the ground, 25,000 bumper stickers. We raised $2 million in a primary U.S. Senate race, mm -hmm. where typically the GOP you know, goes on their back and never even bothers fighting. They did not support me. In fact, they did the opposite. They went and found a guy called Kevin O'Connor, good Irish name, yeah. who couldn't even raise any money. They had to give him $200,000. We raised one to $5 donations. And in that election, by all ground reports, even the GOP who hated me, establishment, they said Dr. Shiva's gonna win on a landslide. And what happens? The election results come in, in 2020, on September 2020, I win in the hand-counted paper ballot, predominantly all white working class county called Franklin County who loved me, right? They saw me as one of yeah. their own by 10 points. And in every other county, 60-40, there are eight other counties. And that's when I had to put my hat on as an engineer, as a scientist, as a systems guy. And we were the first ones to discover that on the machines, is a feature called the weighted race feature in the oh, Debold machines. That means if Mike got a thousand votes and you got 2000 votes, I could multiply Mike's votes by two and take your votes and multiply it by 0.5. Mike ends up getting 2000 votes. You end up getting only 1000 votes. Wow. And when I did the stochastic modeling, that's what it revealed. There was the flip vote flipping. And in order for me to validate that, I went to the secretary of state, we filed a FOIA and I said, please give me the images of the ballots which are generated on the machines. Again, to everyone listening, we're talking about AI. AI is used on those machines now. So when you yes. put your ballot image in, the AI scans, the, well, the, the machine makes a photograph of your image, and there's various AI algorithms which determine what is a vote, what is not a vote, where does a vote appear? And a lot of Congress people don't understand this, that AI is being used on voting machines. And remember when the, you guys may remember when the Al Gore thing took place. Remember, what is a chat? How much was Hanging it? Hanging chats, to, yes. <laughs> Right? Well, now the AI is determining what is a vote. Congress right. has no policies 
to even determine that because the numbskulls there don't even know this is going on. So right. when I asked for the ballot images, they said they deleted them. Well, that's they said a they violation of federal them. law right there. It's a viol it's it's called 52 USC 20701. That law was passed 50 years ago by an all Democrat majority because obviously there were cheating going on for minorities who were running. So they said, okay, let's allow election audits for 22 months, which is a good thing. And they encouraged it. So I was simply wanting to audit the elections. And when I asked for those images, they said they deleted them. They said they didn't have to give them to me. They said, basically, there are, they didn't even give me the statutes that allowed them to do it. When I shared those, uh, Mike and Todd, on social media, on Twitter, that they deleted these ballot images, I'm thrown off in the middle of our Senate race when I decided to move it to a writing campaign. So I just want everyone to listen to this. The mm -hmm. most important, highest protection of the First Amendment is not only free speech, but political free speech in the middle of an election. Yes. It is the highest protected form. So I, as a US Senate candidate, was thrown off in the middle of a federal election, not by Twitter. This is where it gets very interesting because we found out that the government had contacted Twitter. A woman called Michelle Tassinari, who was the Secretary of State's legal counsel, had contacted Twitter. Turns out she's on the board of CISA. So oh, wow. when I exposed right. her, I was exposing right. something much bigger. That so, led into... So sorry, this, this is Kabuki Theater selections. Right? Elections and, are selections. Yeah, and, and you mentioned they, and sorry, Mike, I just have to get this, this question in. We often uh, hear people talking about the elusive they, as in the secret societies controlling the world, be it the Freemasons, Bilderbergers, Deep State, World Economic Forum, uh, Club of Rome, Committee of 300, or you know maybe even Satan's and, and his demons. I don't know. I have uh, one question and one request that ties into all of this, um, and I'll present them both, Dr. Shiva. Based on your experience in research, uh, who are they? And can you follow by educating us on the notion of swarm intelligence, please? Because I think that that probably yeah. ties so, in. So Todd and Mike, look, everyone listening, today's discussion here, we're talking about a lot of deep stuff and everyone should go review a lot of this because we're getting really deep. But I think this will be one of the most educational things. We're, we're going from AI, we're talking about elections being selections and all of this is technology, if you notice. It, it, without people in Congress without our future leaders understanding technology, we're all screwed. Mm -hmm. And so when you, we've moved from AI understanding of technology, we've moved to election systems being technology driven. And now we go to who is our oppressor? Who is the enemy? The enemy, if you want to take what we call a reductionist model, where you think the old model of looking at the world was, okay, have an elephant. I'm only going to look at the tusk of the elephant. It's called the blind man not seeing the whole elephant, or you're only going to look at the tail and you think it's a brush or et cetera. The elites want us not to see the whole elephant. They want us to be like the blind man in the Buddha story where you're wearing blinders and you're touching different pieces and you think, oh, I'm touching the tusk. It must be a spear or I'm the blind man touching the, the trunk and you think it's a snake, right? The reality is we need to remove our blinders and see this thing called the elephant. And that's a systems approach. And at truthfreedomhealth.com, and every one of you know, I used to teach this at MIT, the future is seeing the whole. The elites know how to see the whole. 
So those people on the internet, they want to say, oh my God, it's the Jews who are our problem. It's the Rothschilds. It's the reptiles over here. It's the Queen of England. It's the Muslims. It's the, you know, the Christians or it's the whatever. You can keep going. It's the Hindus, right? Or it's this cult. And this is where the establishment wants us to go here and here and here. And we go into these little um, uh, dens that don't lead anywhere. But when you step back and you realize there's something called swarm intelligence. And if you've ever been, you know, out in the woods or if you've ever been over at twilight and you see these star uh, like uh, whatever those birds that fly around, right? They fly in these interesting swarms. Sometimes they're moving in one direction. Sometimes one bird goes here and the others follow. There is competition among them, but ultimately they move together in a dance. And they communicate to each other every particle in that, quote unquote, telepathically. And this is very important to understand. We don't, um, the work of Ilya Pergroni, who won the Nobel Prize in 1957, started recognizing the relation between information, matter, and energy. That there is some, quote unquote, communications between objects. Like the 100th monkey event, one monkey breaks a coconut ear halfway around the world, another monkey learns it. And they all occur in a very short period of time. So the elites work as a swarm. Um, they're a multiracial, decentralized group of people who have one intention that they're trying to maximize, power, profit, and control. So people go to shattertheswarm.com in 15 minutes so you don't waste 50 years of your life. Watch that video, watch it with your family. It's a very profound video. I, it really it is years probably to do that video. Everyone should watch it because you'll understand who is the enemy and you'll get a little more sophisticated. So if you think, oh, my God, John Kennedy is our hero. He was killed by the CIA and he was against him, by the way, which is false. Kennedy actually escalated the CIA. This is all mythos. OK, <laughs> um, but the establishment is a bunch of organized criminals. That's what they are, be it the Kennedy organized crime family or the Zionist organized crime families, or the whatever organized crime families, they may have their own differences. And they sort of move like this. Sometimes they compete. But together, they hate you and I. They want to suppress a broad mass of humanity. Why? And this is a central thing people need to understand. So please, don't get involved supporting, thinking, oh, my God, the Kennedys are our heroes, and they were the victims of the CIA, and blah, 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 blah. This is where they want to hook you in. The broad mass of working people have nothing to gain by feeling sympathy for the swarm or any elements of the swarm. The swarm will do what it needs to maximize power, profit, and control. Why do they and hate us so not. much? What's why, do they hate, why do they hate us so much, Dr. Shiva? Well, I think at a fundamental level, if you want to think about the devil or evil or whatever you want to call Satan from the Christian tradition or yeah. um, Kali from the Indian tradition, these people are in my view whatever life journey or whatever uh, epigenetics that they have they're about themselves and maximizing power profit and control they see truth freedom health as something that's the antithesis of everything they believe right this Bingo. is and this is what it is so if you want to think about it spiritually you could call it satan you could call it the devil you could call it evil but from a very um you know uh, scientific engineering perspective, these people want to ma maximize these three variables. The broad mass of people want to maximize three other variables. We want more truth. We want more freedom. 
We want more health, economic health, physical health, et cetera. They wow. may want some of those things, but for themselves, okay? So when a technology like artificial intelligence comes, their goal is to use that technology for themselves. Okay, we could use AI, Mike and Todd, to support, okay, I'm a cytologist, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm gonna use AI to advance myself, right? Um, you know, where I don't have to work 50 hours, you know, or 20 hours a day, right? I work less, I spend more time with my family, and these tools are supporting me increasing wealth. What they wanna do is they wanna get rid of you. They will use this to depopulate us, right? Mm -hmm. They will say, well, why exactly. do I need all these people? And this, this is, is, a this is about replacing people, but- It's replacement. Dr. Yeah. It's absolute replacement. I mean, look at Microsoft uh, Autogen. Look at Amazon with the release of Q. The, these are designed to replace white collar workers, office workers, people who handle documents and make decisions. They're obsolete right now if, if they don't realize it yet, but they are. But th there's something I've, I've been really wanting to ask you about all of this, Dr. Shiva, it, and it really relates to what we're talking about today, which is the issue of emergent properties from these large language models. Now, as you know, these LLMs that are out there right now, such as ChatGPT, a lot of open source LLMs like Llama to you know, 7B, like a 7 billion parameter model, all of these language models, the fact that they can actually complete sentences and answer questions was a surprising emergent property that I think most of the machine learning specialists did not anticipate. As you know, when, when these systems are spitting out the next word in an answer, they are simply predicting only the next word. That's all they're doing, using patterns, you know, hyperdimensional uh, matrices of word relationships or token relationships in order to build the next word and then the next word and the next word. And they spit them out. And then it makes sense to us humans because of the relationships of these concepts. Now, that was an emergent property. The creative writing aspects of chat GPT, that was unexpected emergent property. My question to you, sir, is, what other unanticipated emergent properties might we anticipate, or I mean, you and I can anticipate it, but as a whole, they're not anticipated. What should we be concerned about? For example, you know, sentience or something like that, a, a machine setting its own goals and going off script uh, or, or what other properties, what, what might concern you in that realm? Yeah, Mike, this is the fundamental question. You know, in 1994, when I had built this technology, for, by the way, what I didn't share in 1994, um, I was, it, as email volume was growing, the White House uh, ran a contest in the industry to see where their technologies, Mike and Todd, that could automatically take an email and categorize it into different buckets. That was where it started. I ended up winning that contest. I was a grad student, left MIT, started a company called EchoMail, which became the leader in customer service. When emails came in, we'd analyze it, figure out a response, the customer service rep could see it and give their feedback and they were able to do more emails per day with better response. We didn't get rid of customer service, we enhanced our work. And, and, the, and the system started learning. Now, what was interesting, Mike, in 1994, as I was doing a lot of these algorithms and training stuff, I had a very interesting dream. It was sort of a spiritual dream. I woke up in this very lucid dream and there's me sitting across a table from something that looked like me, Mike, a robot, right? What you would call it. And the thought that went into my head was, what is the difference between me and that thing? Mm -hmm. When I got out of that dream, I said, at some point, when you take a mechanistic view of the universe and you put enough math, 
and you put enough technology, there's going to be objects that look like you and can perform mechanistically like you. The question then becomes, what is the difference between you and that thing that you're sitting across from? It's a yes. very profound question. And the conclusion I came to was, can that thing experience love? Can it experience death? And it, can it self-reflect on itself and ask, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? So this was sort of a very deep question. But in the book, System and Revolution that I wrote, Mike, I have a whole chapter in there to educate people what is an emergent property. So an emergent property, so, so what's happened is this is a very fundamental question because it comes down to the question, in fact, is there a soul or not even, okay? What is soul? What does spirit mean? And so the material view is that, and, and so many countries have been doing these large language models and brain projects. And the theory is that if you build, if you put enough neural networks, artificial, they call them ANN, into a large computer, that once you pack enough network connections in, the emergence of consciousness will come. So in the material view of consciousness, consciousness is an emergent property of enough material connections, neural network connections. Exactly. So that, that's that's what material scientists believe is the case even with the human brain. They believe that right. consciousness is a projected illusion of the, the computational complexity of neurology. Exactly. Right. So if you do enough, so the basic model in the 60s was a perceptron where you have two neurons and you have a connection strength and you can train these things and it's become multi-layered uh, perceptrons. By the way, just to give you a simple idea, what these things are ultimately doing is in a mathematical perspective, fitting a line to a curve. A neural network, simply put, in statistics, is called multi-level nonlinear regression. But fundamentally, the theory is that if you keep giving these machines enough data, enough data, they'll start generalizing, and they will be able to finish a sentence, right? In the human, what makes a human a human is you teach a child 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? 3 plus 3 equals 6, 4 plus 4 is 8, and the child can even say, oh, yeah, 5 plus 5 is 10. It's called generalization. You don't have to keep training it, right? And these neural networks are able to generalize. And that's what we call these models. So the issue is, what is consciousness? Is consciousness something that, that is outside of the physical body? Or is it an emergent property of matter coming together in enough, quote unquote, neural networks being packed together? It's a very foundational question. Well, well let, let, is, let me add to that. The, yeah. the large language models right now, the, the best ones are showing meta-analysis of their own processes. For example, I believe there are models that you can ask it the question, how many words will be contained in your next answer? And they can answer one. Mm -hmm. That shows, again, that shows, right, self-analysis or a level of at least the simulation of consciousness. But that's the key question, Dr. Shiva. You're talking about soul and consciousness. And, you know, Todd and I believe that consciousness is a gift from God that cannot be replicated in computing systems. But then again, is there an emergent property of complex systems that can simulate consciousness? Or do you believe that even our own consciousness is a simulation? I mean, there's a question, heresy. Yeah, perhaps, I mean, but a question. These, yeah, so, so let me give you from the ancient yogic sciences. The yoga, the, so in the ancient spiritual traditions, Mike, it's fascinating. So just think about this. Um, you can take two views of this. Take the machine, let's say it's able to do equally better as much as a human being. Um, 
can it, 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 will that emergence of consciousness make it quote unquote human? Okay, that's one question I want people to hold over here. The other question is if you take a human being who goes through this process, um, can they also be a non-human being, okay? Right. Meaning they're not able to have a consciousness, they're not able to self-reflect. So even though they're in this body that we call base of carbon and water and et cetera, and there's another silicon-based being, it's a there's a theoretical possibility that this being may be more simulating to be more human, have self-reflection than the human being who just does a material process, goes to work. NPC. This, that, That's the term we yeah. use. Non-player. Yeah, it's an NPC. Now, what's interesting is in the yogic system of true, not Hinduism as you see, but the true um spiritual teachings. There was a concept when you study in Indian medicine, the body, the body was set, said to be the physical body, what you see, something, there was some, another body called the astral body. They had a concept of what was called the etheric body, the causal body, and the soul body. So the ancients believed there is a soul, you know, which is independent of the body. And this soul over time got encased with these other sheets, which was the causal body, the, these were more grosser forms until you come to the physical body. And the ancient systems of yoga said that you were supposed to build a connection with God, your creator, and each of those creations, you started remove, peeling away these layers until you became the light of God. You were a co-creator with God, okay? And that was a concept of soul. Now, if you think about what's gonna happen with this related area called transhumanism, what happens Right now, many young people born, born today, they're growing up on the internet, right? This is yes. their world. Mm -hmm. What happens one day that you have haptics, you know, the ability to sense things millions of miles away. You have the ability to put on, let's say, contact lenses where you can see someone, you know, thousands of miles away. There's new things where you can smell and touch. So now you have, let's say we add some layer to this physical body, and Mike, you could be in California and I could be in India. And we're literally through this interface projecting and I look like I'm seeing you and you look like you're seeing me. And you're born into that world. You would That would become your reality. So you are literally projecting yourself into this virtual space. So there's a thesis that says that we are soul and we may be beyond time and space and we've forgotten that. And we are projecting ourselves through these sheets. Mm. And we think this interaction that we're having right here is the real interaction in this gross form. And so the Indian spiritualists believe the goal of purpose of life was to reconnect with your creator and see things as they are. You start breaking down these layers, right? Because the way this is headed, what you call a human being, the sort of the gross form of the human being is going to be replicated. Yes, exactly. It, it, into the, the gross form of the physical mechanistic activities, the computational piece, all those pieces. That's why in a in a podcast I did almost five years ago, Mike, I said, AI really began when we started taking the manufacturing line and said, okay, you put on the tires on the car, you put on the bolts, you do this, you took a physical human being in their broad sense of all the creative activities that you do could do, and you siloed them into these mechanistic views. You That's could right. say that was already AI, right? But done in a physical body, I mean, in a human carbon-based body. Now we're moving to a world where these silicon-based things 
could start to do pretty much every human activity, but potentially even better and faster and cheaper, right? So then the issue is what is the purpose of the human being? And I think this is gonna come back to asking what does it mean to be human? Absolutely. And I think it's gonna lead to this fundamental issue, what, who am I, what does it mean to be human? Because if being human means, oh, I can run faster, well, the machine can run faster than you. I can compute better, well, the machine can compute better. You know, I can write a, a beautiful sonnet. Well, the machine can do a sonnet. So what makes you different than that machine? And well, this, this is going to be the gets, fundamental issue of our time. I, I completely agree. But also, a soul is decentralized, right? So this is a key element. When you have self-awareness and you have creativity, which is a whole nother conversation, where does creativity come from? Is that an emergent property of complex neurology or inspiration from God or, or a combination? But these are the types of things, and you you said the expression of love, uh, being mortal, uh, these these human emotions and these other conditions. These are the kinds of things that separate us from machines that machines will never be able to replicate. But the way most people define themselves as a human being today is, oh, how much do I earn? How big is my house? How much material wealth have I accumulated? Well, machines will will make that obsolete in no time. Or yeah. what is my job? What are my what are my hands-on skills? Oh, I'm a welder. Well, guess what? There's going to be a machine that can that can do the welding as well. So you're right. What does it mean to be human? But the people running the system, they don't like humanity. They are transhumanists. They want to merge with the machines, mm -hmm. which is another layer of horror in all of this. They're like the yeah. body is is just an empty vessel. They want to become you know a silicon AI avatar, and they think that's them. Now, Mike, I, I, I think you nailed it. Look, I want to go one level deeper, and I've thought about this for a, a time, and I think the audience can understand this. I think I've, I've figured out a way to articulate this. Right. This path that you're talking about, Mike, it is taking what I call the mechanistic view of the universe. Let me explain what I mean by this. In 1600s, when Isaac Newton discovered the laws of motion, this was a major inflection point in looking at ourselves and our world and this division between religion and science. Let me explain this. What Isaac Newton discovers, right? He discovers that he can predict the motion of a particle. That's what Newton's equations predicted, right? F equals MA, right? You have the laws of gravity. But what fundamentally Newton said is, if you think about it very simply, he figures out that I can predict the motion of a projectile, where it was and where it will go based on how much force, mass, and acceleration. Now it gets even more interesting. Newton's equations say that I can predict where the Earth will be at a certain point in time, the orbit of the Earth, right? I can predict it exactly. Now it gets even more profound. It, his laws are based on time, right? The time yes. prediction of an event. An event can be forward in time or reverse in time, okay? So right, right. Laws laws future state prediction based on current data. Right. And they can predict the past because they're based on right. physical, physical mechanistic equations. Now, this was quite important because what it said was what Newton is basically saying at that point in the 1600s is that the world is a mechanistic clockwork. That means I can predict at a very deep philosophical level where every particle will be. In fact, I can predict where you will be because you're made up of particles. So the time when this was discovered, it brings saying that the universe is mechanistic. It's literally like a clock. You can predict where everything is going to be. So the day that Newton puts out his equations, the 
religious people also get very antagonistic because this is seen counter to religion because religion says there's a God, you, you can have miracles, you pray to God and, and it's counter to this concept of a mechanistic world. So since the 1600s to today, we've had this unfortunate dialectic between the mechanistic view of the world and this view that says there is a creator um, and there's miracles or events that can take and, place. And free will. And free will, right? So this right. has been this dialogue. Now what's happened is the people who believe in the mechanistic view of the universe, what we're seeing is they're taking that all the way to the nth degree. What they're saying, getting back to what we talk about Elon Musk and all the social media companies, they literally believe in that mechanistic view that I can watch Shiva's tweets, I can watch Mike's tweets, I can watch, I can watch everyone. And if I gather enough data, I can predict if you, there's a wonderful book written by Isaac Asimov called uh, The Foundations, it's a trilogy. And it's a wonderful piece where he says at some point in the book, and he, and he wrote this book in the 70s, that there would be so much data contained that people would be able to predict everything into the future. And so the mechanistic view of the world leads you to this point where we're right now, where the hubris of all the data scientists is, I'm gonna be able to predict where the world is going. I'm gonna be able to predict movements. I'm gonna be able to predict Dr. Shiva wants to build a bottoms up movement. So I'm gonna create fake versions of him, Booby Kennedy or Vivek the Snake, because we can predict the future and we can predict ways to alter the future. You see what I'm saying? But it is fundamentally based on this mechanistic view. Which is flawed, which is a flawed view. Which is flawed. And that is yeah. why system science is so important, Mike, because the work of the, the what, what came about in the 20s and 30s and 50s was system science. Now, system science is a beautiful science. My work united the, 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 the developments in system science, integrating that with these ancient systems of medicine with engineering system science. And what we find now is that you know, that the mechanistic view of the world is an instance of much, much larger. And this is what Ilya Pergroni showed in his work. And at some point I can go into it. It showed that the universe is actually not deterministic, that things are occurring in a, in a wonderful way that under certain conditions, the mechanistic world as we see it is a subset, Mike and Todd. That's it is right. not the only world. So that means an individual's thought in individuals raising their consciousness, love, connecting with another people can profoundly change all of this. You see, That's and right. this is what true science at the meta level shows that when we took it, when we take this mechanistic view, which is what the elites and you can call that these forces want us to believe, everything becomes a simulation. Everything is predictable. We're all just robots and the emergent prop. You see, it, it leads to where we're going to, Mike. But Absolutely. the true nature of the universe. The universe is actually quite non-deterministic. And one individual, you and I, I raise my consciousness, you raise your consciousness to this understanding. It can profoundly change everything, Mike. And this is what the elites don't want us to learn. Because what that leads to is saying the profound, the profound ability of, a, of an individual to raise their consciousness, connect with God, that that can change everything. That can shatter the swarm. That can shatter this mechanistic view. And yeah, this we, is we where can, we're we can at. alter the universe through our consciousness. Completely. And in fact, what we are seeing and living in right now are merely projections. As you said, they, they, they are the lower levels 
of what our consciousness is projecting and a mechanistic the role view of the observer in the world you know heisenberg principle all of it it, it all folds in together you're you're exactly right dr shiva nailing it yeah it's 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 interesting mike in the very ancient you know when i you know i pray and i meditate regularly and what i find and and the many of the great rishis have talked about this and i'm sure in the christian tradition is that there's really three levels of intelligence and i think this is a way that everyone really needs to understand this the first level of intelligence is a very what they call instinctual intelligence the instinct that a mother you know a tiger has when a snake is coming at its cub right instinctually you know go at it or you can see animals have a very instinctual intelligence right we have it if someone is coming at you with a knife right you you, you know you evade this action reaction that's in the you know a very certain part of our brain instinct the next level of intelligence is what we're talking about this mechanistic intellectual ability to solve problems lawyers writing briefs you know writing these you know certain kinds of things you see what i'm saying the intellectual intelligence which is a very two-sided intelligence you can use it for great good or you can use it to manipulate people a lawyer can get off a mass murderer right it's this mechanistic intelligence now the third type of intelligence is the intuitive intelligence which comes way beyond all of this it's in a flash that you have an observation you could say it comes from years of practicing something meditation work connecting to something much larger than you and the question is we are when we say artificial intelligence we're literally in this realm of the rational intellectual intelligence we're not at the intuitive realms the kinds yeah. of thoughts that come to you when you wake up at three in the morning right when you've been working on something what you call the super consciousness or the where you're, you're you're really moved by something deeper and that's the question mike that this 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 rationalized intelligence can probably be replicated and but that is this very mechanistic view of the world but the satanic forces or you want to say the these forces who run the world they want to make us mechanized they want us to be a node in this large centralized scheme of things that's right. And that's, that's where right. they went ahead. So they're creating machines and the reflection of that mechanistic view. And the, so, the takeaway from this, from, from a practical sense for people is, if you want to beat AI, maximize your humanity. Be more yeah. human. Mm. And, and don't be robotic. Don't be just in the, in the world of being a, a better computational human. You know, human cognition as the computational layer, like you just described, Dr. Shiva, is going to be vastly outpaced by AI computation. But the highest level, the intuitive level, the connection level, that can't be touched by AI, AI systems, at least as I currently understand it. And if they do tap into that, then we have a whole different problem. Well, well, <laughs> well Mike, I think this is the challenge. Do you as a human being, it's a, do you want to op operate at the instinctual level, like an animal, like a beast, you know, like, and that's what most of, I believe these people that's operate. That's like half of Twitter right now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or <laughs> even these people in Hollywood or the Zionists and all these people, they're all cal about, they're mammon. They just care about making money. They don't give a damn about what happens to the people in Gaza. On the one, they can, um, they can have these contradictions. They can act like they're against vaccine debts. And those same people are Zionists who are fine with butchering Palestinians. You see what I'm saying? Like Booby Kennedy, he claims he's for medical freedom, was all out for butchering. You see this very contradictory, and they make money, by the way, it's all about making money. They talk about fighting vaccines, they make cha-ching, cha-ching money, and then they talk about obliterating the Palestinians, going after their 200 
cubic feet of natural gas trillion. and they make money. They don't uh, care how they make money. Feet, yeah. yeah, a couple of trillion cubic feet. So it's about maximizing power, profit, and control. So the human being is going to have to decide what realm do I want to operate in? Because Good if point. you're operating in the instinctive and the intellectual level, you're going to be replaced. And, you, and that's what's going to happen. But do you want to be a true human being? And this is a fundamental question. And this is where we're at. So a true human being will say, yeah, Dr. Shiva can be president. Why not? But if you take a mechanistic view, you know, you'll say, oh, well, you have to be in the party and you have to get all this, you know, you have to be on the Joe Rogan podcast when it's all part of that mechanistic world. But a true human will say, yeah, I'm going to get on the ground in the cold. I'm going to go bottoms up. I'm going to go door to door. I'm going to create the world that I see it with a connection with my co-creator. And that comes from being connected and doing the hard work of becoming a human being. The possibilities of what it means to be when you co-create with God. And that's what the question becomes, Mike, mm. because the other realms, you'll come up with all, well, I guess that's just the way the world is. I guess we have to obliterate the, the people in Gaza. I guess that's what we have to do. You know, you have to compromise. You have to vote for the lesser of two evils. You have to come from the Kennedy family or the Trump family or these people, you have to come from hedge funds. So we diminish ourselves because we eliminate the possibilities of what is possible from creating something out of nothing, which that, is the creation that, of God. That was the most brilliant segue I've ever heard into a presidential campaign, but I yes. mean, you, you're making a point, but the fact that you can tie in these concepts to what you're talking about as president, that's really remarkable. So let me just use this opportunity to give out your website again. It's shiva4president.com. That's the numeral for, there it is, shivaforpresident.com. And uh, Dr. Shiva, uh, before we wrap this up, and I want to give Todd a chance to chime in here too, but how can people help you become president? What practically can people do? So Mike, the question is, my becoming president is intimately related to the, to the individual wanting to be a human being. So the issue is how can they help? What they need to recognize that they need to change their neural networks from recognizing that do they wanna fight for themselves, for their humanity? So how can they do this? Well, first of all, recognize the possibilities of the fact that one of us who comes bottoms up deserves to be president. We deserve to have people like me and you be in leadership positions. Why are we outsourcing to people who are lawyers who've cheated all their lives? This is a fundamental change. So this is really about you. Do you wanna go through this transformative process my running for president gives you the opportunity to go through that transformation. It's going to be a little bit of hard work. You're going to have to let go of all the garbage that you've been polluted with. So number one, go to Shiva for president. Get a bumper sticker and put it on the back of your car. Now, what is that action? That says, you know what? I'm giving a big F you, not cursing, right, to <laughs> the establishment not only to the establishment, but to my thinking that what is possible. And when you put it on the back rear windshield of a car, 100,000 people see it. Now you have used your own hard work, your car that you're paying for to become an agent of messaging, right? That's number one. Number two, if people go to shivaforpresident.com, there's a flyer that we have in the free download section, which teaches people what they have been doing to us in a very simple graph that the life expectancy of Americans is going downward, it has a swarm video you can scan and watch. And then it has on the right side, the solution. You can watch my journey to this. 
you can go to Truth Freedom and Help, become a warrior scholar. And then, Mike, we invite people to come to these open houses I do, where we actually teach people how to take care of their immune system. We teach people how to go and support their local farmers. We teach people how to start thinking. We teach people how to become innovators. We're actually teaching people the actual policies we would do when we got elected president. So get that flyer. The third thing is become a volunteer. Why do I want you to become a volunteer? Because you're gonna learn, oh, I gotta do this. Let me go out in the cold and I gotta stand there and I have to learn how to be vulnerable as a human being. Say, hi, would you sign the signature? Some people will leave you. You have to go through that process, no big deal. And you have to stand there and you have to connect with another human being. It's quite extraordinary. And you have to realize this is hard work, that you have to start using muscles that the elites do not want you to use, which is you becoming an agent of change for you. So go be a volunteer. It's extraordinary what you'll learn. I love Mike, I was just out since 7 a.m. People come, a veteran came from Korean War. He goes, you know, I'm so glad you're running. Because what's happening to this country is that they're destroying the First Amendment that I died fighting for. You start having conversations, which is what they don't want to have. You're physically there with someone in flesh and blood. And this, this really transforms you. It's an opportunity, Mike, for people to transform themselves and reconnect. Fourth, go to Truth, Freedom, and Health. It took me 50 years, Mike. You don't have to go to MIT. You're getting the same knowledge that Henry Kissinger and George Soros are using this knowledge to manipulate you. You can learn it, support it, get involved. So Shiva for president, volunteer. Notice, Mike, I haven't asked for money at all. Now, one thing in this hour and a half, I've asked for money. Some people say, can I give you money? If you give me money, be ready. I'm going to give you books and knowledge and courses. And think about all these other people, man. Every day, they're raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Where is that money going? And is money is what we need? No, we don't need money. We need you to use your ingenuity, your labor, because labor is more powerful than capital. And that's what we need to teach people, Mike. Our campaign, what we're doing right here, what you do, what Todd and I are having, is an opportunity for people to transform this, to literally you know, change this, to become truly humans. That's what the opportunity is, Mike. Wow, brilliantly stated, like no one else. Thank mm -hmm. you for that, Dr. Shiva. And uh, Todd, uh, the final thoughts are yes. yours now. What I have, to say to that? I have several, <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, but I have several, but you really triggered me. Dr. Shiva, in, in a positive way related to becoming a creator, your own creator. And I want to, I want to make, I want to present to you two invitations. The first invitation is go to the fourth episode of Decentralized.tv, where Mike and I interviewed the CEO of FoodForestAbundance.com, Jim Gale. I invite you to watch that interview. And then I invite you by extension of him. Because as Mike knows, he's all about planting food, abundant food, not poisonous lawns. And he has a very, very in-depth strategy that he presented to Booby Kennedy, who grin effed him and got the photo ops and then faded to black. I invite you to fly to uh, Central Florida, Orlando, Florida, and go to what's called Galt's Landing. This is the poster child for wow. being able to be able to demonstrate to the world what you can do on nothing but sand, how you turn it in 18 months into this abundant food force, this permaculture food force. Oh, it's amazing, and too. It's amazing. Yeah. 
We interviewed him. And then as Mike knows, I'm a man of action. I decided to engage Jim and his team and they installed a food forest in my back property. And as you were talking about the creation and about tapping that next third level, intuitive level, I was just taken to my walk this morning through my food forest where I saw this single tiny orange tree with one orange on it. And I'm like, I've not seen Yay. you before. I have not seen you before, little fella. <laughs> and it made me feel just astonishing. And I believe, can you imagine, can you imagine Dr. Shiva being able to go to public schools, private schools, teaching the kids how to grow and tend to food, to the gardening, going into prisons and being able to teach the prisoners how to in their yards, instead of pumping iron, planting and installing food for us and caring for them and becoming creators and tapping that next level of humanity. So to me, that's just the whole, my belief, that's the Holy Spirit within me. Well, so let's do this, Todd, introduce us because in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna be announcing what our cabinet would look like. Imagine having oh. Jim Gale be the, you know, be the head of agriculture and a Dr. Shiva for president presidency. Right? Amen. Amen. So, God bless you. Yes. So so let's connect. Let's talk to him because what Booby Kennedy does, he just swoops in and he's done this all over the world. He takes something, does a photo ops and he, then he exits yes. because this is what the devil does. They take good yeah. people's knowledge and then they use it. He literally comes and steals all of our stuff. We see it. But yes. if Jim is out there and he's come up with this technology that can do this. He has a whole strategy. I mean, yeah, it's let's so in depth. Okay. Yeah, so, so please, please reach out. Let's, let's okay. do that. But Mike that's Adams, the action step on that. Mike, afterwards, if you would, if you would please get yeah, Dr. Shiva's contact info. Yeah, and 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 I would not mind if your editors could just take this little piece out so that I could send it to Jim because I know this won't yep. be published for a while. But uh, thank you, thank you for being open to that because well, I this, think that we'll, we'll changes run this the episode world. next week. By the way, it's not going to take that long. Look, my my okay, grandparents great. were farmers, right? And I know, you know, what's possible. Uh, permaculture is an amazing system because it is yes. a systems approach. You're yes. connecting all these interconnected systems, right? Yes, yes. Right. You're 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 remanifesting how nature actually worked. So yeah. if, and and so permaculture, but but if Jim has actually put that into a framework, oh. it should be deployed everywhere. Yes. Oh, I so love he this. Has. You just have to beware, Dr. Shiva. Jim Gale is very boring and quiet and <laughs> has nothing to say. So just, just watch out for that. All right. Uh, yeah. No, okay. seriously, so, seriously, watch watch the fourth episode of Decentralized. Okay. I'll do that. And I encourage everybody else out there watching it to go back and do the same because talk about food for your soul. Uh, he delivers. Yeah. Well, isn't right. that interesting? I mean, we could have a whole discussion about how food, the molecules of food become the molecules of the physical body. But also there's an intuitive connection with food. And I, I believe that plants have a form of consciousness, by the yes. way. But, oh, yeah. And, and that's a whole nother discussion. But, yeah, there's uh, a great, great poem by uh, Herman Hesse. And if you haven't had time, go read it. It's called Trees. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. You know, Herman Hesse is the one who wrote the book called Siddhartha. But it's a mm. beautiful poem on trees, the power yes. of trees, what they represent. And the work of Bose uh, many, many years ago is called The Secret Life of Plants, Mike and Todd. It oh, shows yes. the amazing consciousness plants that plants actually have more genes than us. You know, they have to they stay do. still and survive. Wow. Yeah. Even even yeah. simple, seemingly simple little plants have 
like three or four times the number of, of genes that we have. But Dr. Shiva, we're going to have, have to wrap it up here. This has been truly mm. groundbreaking for our show. And I mean, just this conversation is off the charts, fascinating. And I just want to thank you for taking the time with us today. We've taken a little more of your time than perhaps you had planned. Well, so well Mike, I want to ask a thank you because, you know, you, you, you and I have had interactions over the years, but I thank you for your support. But most importantly, this deep love and kindness I sense in you and, and, and what you're committed to. And that love is what is going to fundamentally change the world mm. uh, because these forces who have all their contradictions, it's time that we educate people that they have to love themselves and their creator enough that they don't need to hurt themselves by accepting these contradictions in these people. And sure. that's what we're, this is, that's what's really about. Well, he said some good things, so I think I have to support him. You don't need to do that because truth is truth is truth. It is pure truth all the way through. It doesn't have these perturbations and these contradictions. And that's what we need to do, Mike, where people can reconnect with their own humanity and not be abuse victims of these people. So I appreciate everything you do, Mike, and I'm glad we've connected like this. And same with you, Todd. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. And we'll, okay. we'll do it again. We'll do it again soon, Dr. Shiva. So okay, thank be you well, so guys. much be for the light. Thank today. you for all the great work you do. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Now then, we'll be back after this break, folks, for the what we call the after-party discussion with Todd and myself. So stay with us. We'll be right back. All right. That's the interview, Dr. Shiva. Thanks, thank Mike. you so much. Be well. Okay. Be well. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. I'll, I'll reach out to you, Dr. Shiva. Thank yeah, please you. Please do so. Let's connect with Jim. Okay. You Thanks. got it. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, and Todd, let's take a five-minute break. And